Well, good morning again. If you are just now joining us, my name again is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the pastors here at Bayless, and we are going to jump right into the Word of God this morning. I would encourage you, if you do not have a Bible, to go ahead and pull one up on your phone. Uh, there's actually some great apps that you can download, including YouVersion is an excellent one, or the ESV Bible app, which is the translation I'll be reading with this morning. So go ahead and download that. We're going to get right to work. Um, and uh, before we do, though, I want to... Uh, I, I can't help but I think this week, think of a couple lines from the song, Oh Holy Night, which has always been one of my favorite Christmas carols this, kind of, this time of year. But these ones particularly, these lines I think are pertinent. Uh, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The weary world rejoices. I think our world is a bit weary right now isn't it? Are you? I think all of us are carrying a certain amount of weariness in this dumpster fire of a year that some people have called it. This Advent season that we are in right now for these four weeks leading up to Christmas is all about setting our eyes on that thrill of hope that nonetheless has interrupted that weariness. Advent is about considering, anticipating the new and glorious morn of Christ's arrival First as a baby, Emmanuel, as God with us, but then who is, who is placed in a, a, a dirty, a grimy manger, an, an animal feeding trough. With, you can, I mean, I think it's such a perfect picture, if I'm honest, of our world without Christ, of why our world was in such need of Christ. But it's also a reminder or a time of anticipation of a second coming. Jesus as, this time, his second advent as a king who comes, as another song put it, to, makes his bless- to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Regardless if you consider yourself a Christian or not, Advent, I have to tell you, is for you. If you're at all weary this morning, God has brought you here to hear good news of great hope, of great peace, of great love, of great joy, the stuff we are all trying to wring out of life and have been searching for in, if we're honest, so many places, Christmas reminds us that these gifts are, in fact, bound up with that swaddled baby who would soon return as glorious king. But instead of considering the swaddled baby, or at least looking at perhaps Luke chapter 2 this morning, or the glorious king of Revelation At least this morning, we are going to look at what came between those at the crucified Savior. The turning point, the hinge point of Jesus' life, and really of all of human history. These last three weeks, we have been examining, in turn, these gifts which are unwrapped in Jesus. Hope, peace, and love. Or, sorry, hope, peace, and joy. But today, we are going to turn and consider love. Looking at how Jesus explained and grounded his offer of love during the last meal, or actually after the last meal he would share with his disciples as he journeyed to his own death. And even though it isn't the most traditional passage to consider at Christmas time, this passage gives us the why behind the angels, the why behind the smelly, sweaty shepherds, the why behind the baby swaddled tight in the dingy stall of animals. This is really the why behind Christmas itself. And so we we looked at John 14 at peace, John chapter 14, John's gospel, 
and then John 16 at joy last week, but now I want to go between those two to John 15 as we consider the last of these gifts to be unwrapped in Jesus, love. And we're going to do so in two parts this morning, really two statements that I hope to unpack together. Are you ready? The first statement that I want to consider first is that the love we need doesn't begin with us. I mean, let's, let's talk about love, right, this morning. Theoretically, love should be the easiest thing for Christians to talk about. Or, at le- yeah, I mean, for God so loved the world, right? Love is what we're about, or at least we should be. And yet, friends, I fear that when it comes to talking about love, particularly in a cultural moment like ours, talking about love is not exactly straightforward. We say things like, I love this pizza, I love my kids, or I'd really love a break right now, or would you like to make love, baby? Think about how different each use of the word love is in just those short statements. But then we have some very different, different opinions about love itself. We, about who we can love, about who can love who, about what that love looks like on the ground, and whether God has anything to do with my love life at all. Ironically, especially now, we fight all the time about love. We boycott, we cancel, we fight those who have a different opinion about love than I do. It's one of the main fracture points, I think, of our culture right now. We all want love, but we disagree on how to find it, where to find it, and what it looks like. Is love than really just some blank recipe. That we're left standing before the kitchen cabinet, grabbing random ingredients, adding in to what, until it tastes the way that I want it to? Until it tastes good to me? Is love really just a blank recipe we're left to fill in on our own? Or is really there a kind of love that we are all looking for? A kind of love which satisfies all of our desires? A, a recipe, if you will, that has often been imitated but never duplicated, a recipe that has been passed down generation to generation to generation, a a, a recipe for love that must never be compromised or we would lose that love entirely. The Bible assumes, actually, that there is such a standard for love. Its whole storyline, the whole storyline of this book, in fact, is a story about love. It's It's a story bound up with love, a relationship of love, which God has, at infinite cost, restored. Yet it's important to say, even as we're going to get to that cost, really the central message of the good news of the gospel, it's important to say that the Bible's story of love does not begin with us at all. Let's look at our passage, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. So have I loved you. This really gets to the very first thing that the Bible teaches us about this love story. Is that first, God is love. The Bible's grand story doesn't begin with my love for God. Actually, certainly not. It doesn't begin even with Jesus' love for us. It begins with 
an even older, even more fundamental, even more beautiful love, if you can imagine it, a love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one. God is one essence. He is one perfect and and undivided substance. And yet in a different sense, that God is also three, three persons. Now, there isn't time for us to go into a deep dive as much as I'm a theology nerd, and I know some of us are theology nerds. There's not nerds. It's not time for us to go into a deep dive on the Trinity itself, except to say that the Trinity, this doctrine, is really central to Christianity, and the Trinity is the very first, the very original community, the original friendship, the original relationship of love. This is what John means when he says later in a smaller letter, the same John who wrote this gospel would say in chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. Notice that love is not God. It's important we don't get that backwards, but God is love. He is its origin. He is its essence. Some of us imagine God as being a bit lonely in heaven, at least before we arrived. Some of us imagine that God created human beings so that he would have someone to love and, and to be loved by in return. But this couldn't be farther from the biblical picture, actually. Instead, God already had all the love he needed. The community of the Godhead, the community of the Trinity, existed already in a perfect relationship, without need, without lack, and, the, and with the deepest and most intimate affection with the most genuine relationship. The love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has never been needy, has never been selfish, has never been distracted or dissatisfied, never cold or run dry. It's perfect. It is enduring. The relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, in fact, eternal. That's the love that every love looks back to. It is the original. It is the OG. Even the love that Christians are to have for one another, the only sufficient analogy for that kind of love is the love that God has for himself. The love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been enjoying before the foundations of the earth. And listen to Jesus' words in John 17, just two chapters later from our text. Verse 22 The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, hear this, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you notice this? The, the only sufficient analogy for the kind of love that Christians are to have for one another, and we're going to get to that love here later, but the only sufficient analogy is the original love itself, the original love, the intense, genuine affection that the Father has for the Son, and the Son has had for the Father. Since when? Since before anything existed. Friends, let me tell you a little bit of why this matters, though. When it comes to talking about love, we need to make sure that our definition, our picture of love doesn't come from the Hallmark Channel or from 
baby, it's cold outside. We need to make sure our understanding of love isn't a cheap knockoff. We need to make sure that it's the original. Let me give you a cheesy illustration of this. So, in Colorado, where I'm from originally, there's a pizza place that I went to uh, as a kid called Bojo's. It's just off the highway. Actually, as you get into the Rocky Mountains, it's one of the best things about the Rockies, actually, in Idaho Springs. If you are through there, you definitely need to stop in at this restaurant. But the, uh, the I don't know if it's the mountain air or just the experience of the, the place itself, but the pizza is just something incredible. It's always been one of my favorites. But then uh, the, this, uh, this uh, business began to take off and they decided to franchise it. They decided to uh, open up a chain of restaurants all over the Denver area. One even opened up where I lived. Um, and you know what? It was absolutely terrible. I'd have friends who would go and get this pizza and they would be so unimpressed. It wouldn't live up to the namesake. And I'd have to, I'd have to apologize and clarify with them. You don't understand. That's, that's not Bojo's. I know it says Bojo's on the sign, but that's not really Bo- Bojo's. It's a knockoff. Just like that, friends, it's, it's possible, it's in fact more than likely, that our taste and understanding of love might be based off of a knockoff rather than the real thing. Just think about it with me for a second. Our love relationships, they're not like the love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for one another. Even in loving my kids, even in loving my wife, I have to tell you, my love turns really sour sometimes. Maybe you can relate. It begins to consume the people I love around me. It turns selfish. selfish. It, it, it gets focused on getting my needs met and resenting when they are not. All of a sudden, my love can start to see others that I claim to love as the enemy, as the obstacle to my love. To understand love, then, we, we really can't start with ourselves. We need to start with God, with the very definition and source of all love. And because that love isn't lacking, isn't selfish at all, it alone can serve as that standard for us. It, you see, that love that exists between the Godhead, it, it doesn't have to be selfish because it already has what it needs. That turns out to be fundamentally important for us, friends. The reason it can be so generous that it can give eternally over and over and over again is because it doesn't have to worry about getting its needs met because it already has all its needs met in that relationship because that love is perfect and stable, it does not have to consume. Like so many of my love relationships, it only gives and gives and gives, which leads to the second grand assumption of the Bible, not just that God is love, but that God has shared his love. Look again at verse 9. I promise we're going to get outside of this verse too, but it's just so much packed in this verse. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. God's love isn't, the, isn't only the first love. It is the wellspring of all love. And the reason you and I experience love at all is because God has chosen to share that love with us. Isn't that what Jesus says in verse 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you? What kind of love then has Jesus shared with us? The same perfect 
unfailing, overwhelming love which the Father and the Son have known among themselves forever, the kind of love only they previously shared that no one else had access to. They opened the door of that love to us who were shivering out in the cold. Their love is the only adequate standard of love, but it's also the ultimate source of all love. Jared Wilson puts it really well this way. The Trinity isn't some weird religious aberration Christians have stupidly clung to. It is the answer to the deepest longing of the human heart. The Trinity answers history's oldest desire. It even clarifies the question. It makes us go deeper than sentimental notions and ethereal feelings and elusive emotions. It puts us on solid ground with all this love stuff we've been chasing forever. We're all looking for love. Deep down, we all need it in ways we don't understand or even acknowledge. We search and search. We find glimpses, moments, tastes, and samples of love. We have genuine experiences of love. And yet nothing quite gets us outside of our own hurts, our own self-interest, our own sins. We need the realest love there is. This, friends, is the realest love there is. And even though it doesn't begin with us, it has been shared with us. Which leads to the ultimate demonstration of how this love has been shared or really its final accomplishment. God has shared this love at infinite cost. I have to tell you, I, I know some of us, even many religious people who do not like sermons all about God, especially sermons all about God and his love for himself, it makes us deeply uncomfortable. We, we want to hear about how God loves us, about God's intense affection for us. We want to be center stage in that story. We don't like hearing that God doesn't need us. We don't like hearing that God is ultimately for God. I mean, doesn't this take away the, from the kind of love that he has for me? Doesn't this mean that, I mean, do I get the scraps of God's love, the leftovers of God's love? And what about on my bad days? Do I even get the scraps? Does this love stick around for me? If it's already content, if I can't earn it, if, I, if he doesn't need me at all, what promise do I have that he actually will love? To put this differently is God's love for himself at odds with his love for us? You probably aren't surprised that I think the answer to that question is no. But I also think that the proof we are looking for is the cross itself. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This verse is very famous to, uh, amongst many Christians. But when the disciples first hear this, they only hear how this refers to them. This is the standard of their love. That's a little bit intense, right? We're going to get to more to Jesus' command to the disciples here in a second. But what we need to know first is that Jesus, when he makes this statement, almost with a, a smirk on his face, a twinkle in his eye, he has himself ultimately, ultimately in mind. The greater love, which lays down its own life, that's his. 
The cross shows us the love of the Trinity doesn't diminish God's love for us at all. It intensifies it. It actually only makes it grander. Only the one who had everything, you see, could give himself for the ones who offered him nothing. Only the one who already had love would not need to be stingy with his love, but even would swallow us up into that love, that we might know it as perfectly and as completely as he does. Only a God who does not need us can give so richly to us that we might share in a love story that has been going on since before the foundations of the earth, a a kind of love story that now I am swallowed up, brought up, swept up into. This act which brought eternal promises to fruition through the crucifixion, through the bloody death of Jesus, also represents the greatest act of perfect selflessness, the death of a man for his friends. But notice the death of those who he would make his friends. I mean, did you notice that? Jesus makes a really big deal in verse 15 of calling, out of calling them friends. And you think about how casually we use the term friends. I even say friends quite a bit on my, in my Sunday services. You have a friend on social media. But in the ancient world, actually, friendship meant a great deal to call someone your friend. In fact, though, even more so, you would never call God your friend. Only two individuals in the Hebrew Bible were ever called friends of God, Abraham and Moses, and still, and still, God is never called their friend. They are called friends of God. God has friendship with them, but they are not called friends of, they're not, God is not called their friend. Even Jesus, prior to this, as the Son of God, is referred to by many titles, but never as a friend, at least not until this point. You see, it would not only be disrespectful to call God your friend, it would be downright heresy. It's too close, it's too personal, it's too intimate. One might consider themselves God's servant. There were certainly God's enemies. But to be called one's, called God's friend, it meant that you had access to God's mind, to his motives, to his plans, to his purposes in the world. It was something one didn't claim because it was simply too arrogant to claim. But then Jesus puts it clearly here. I have called you friends. This is a fundamental turning point. All those who Jesus would choose for himself would be let in, you see, on God's purposes for history. They would be even made participants in those grand purposes. They would be made God's friends. But in case we aren't aware of it, these disciples, who he's making this promise to, weren't exactly prime candidates for friendship. You see, in less than 24 hours, they they wouldn't exactly act as Jesus's friends. They would be his forsakers. They would be his betrayers. They would be the turncoats. When Jesus would lay down his life for these men he calls friends, they would in fact be Jesus's enemies. Knowing all of this, Jesus still considers them friends. Why? Because he knows that the cross is the only thing that can take enemies and make them into friends. Listen to how Wilson puts this again. Imagine 
that the one who is love himself sacrificed himself. Imagine that the eternal, loving fellowship of the divine community sent out one of their own to die, not just for their friends, but for their four enemies. Why would this loving fellowship do this? And to make the enemies friends, of course. And this is precisely what God has done. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, takes on flesh and comes to die, that he who is true love might show true love and give true love and transform by true love, that we might finally know true love. The love we need does not begin with us. But this leads to really the second major point of our service sermon this morning. This love also doesn't end with us. You know, it's ironic that this season of Christmas is, it becomes so much less about the giving than it does about the getting. My wife will tell you I absolutely hate Christmas lists. I, I don't see any way around them. Actually, among my family, we have to distribute them, especially amongst family members. We don't see that often. But it makes the whole gift-giving process into something about getting others to buy stuff for me that I honestly would have probably bought for myself eventually. And am I the only one who has been disappointed then after giving out the list that someone, when somebody goes off list or when they obviously got me the cheapest thing on that list? But just think about why gift giving was so bound up with Christmas to begin with. It's not because we needed more toys and stuff to clutter up our closets. It was because we, we exchange gifts because the greatest gift has already been shared with us. You see, true generosity, true selflessness only takes place when it is experienced first, friends. Let me say that again. True generosity, true selflessness only takes place when we have experienced it first. Now, the point of this passage boils down to one command. It's Jesus' purpose here. Love. So why doesn't he just come out right and say it? Why does he make it so complicated? Why doesn't he just say, love one another? Why? Because I told you so. Well, duty can be a compelling motive. But duty so often dissolves into pure guilt when we fail, or ugly arrogance when we compare ourselves to others. And then it is only a matter of time before that sense of duty, it dissolves entirely. Now Jesus knows for this kind of love to take over his people, for this kind of love to characterize them, they need to be motivated not just by duty, they need to be motivated by something deeper, something more enduring, something truer, by joy. The same joy that Jesus says he comes to bring, the joy in full. Only joy could produce this kind of drastic, enduring love. And that kind of joy only comes by experiencing that kind of love firsthand. This kind of love must be experienced if it is to be reproduced. Again, verse 13 tells us, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It is a command. Again, it is a command to those disciples and a rather intense one. At that, according to Jesus, loving someone, truly loving someone, means that you need to be willing to die for them. It isn't like the boyfriend who says to his girlfriend, baby, I'd die for you. This 
doesn't mean just that they love one another a lot. It's the kind of love that literally dies to its own desires and preferences for the sake of someone else who considers their life as less valuable than the person that they love. This kind of love seeks the good of someone else, even if it means death to their self-interest. Why? I'll tell you what, it's not because it's trying to earn their love, like maybe an abused spouse, never asserting themselves because they want to be, they want so badly to be loved in return. Loving and loving and loving, just hoping it will finally be reciprocated. No, this kind of love gives and gives and gives for a much different reason. Why? Because it already has everything. Because it has the very love that Jesus has and has shared with those who are bound up with him by faith. Friends, the mark of someone who has experienced the love of God, the love with, which originates with God, the love which God has shared with us, the love that God has shared at infinite cost to himself, the mark of a heart that has woken up to that reality is that they can't help but then share that love with others. In fact, they are uniquely free to do so. A Christian is uniquely free to have a selfless life. The reason we don't show this kind of selfless love, actually, again, is because we are afraid of what it might cost. That we might lose too much. That we might not get anything in return. The reason we don't show this selfless love is because our experience of love, when it comes down to it, is on shaky footing. But if you come to believe the gospel and truly live like the gospel is true. You know what happens? Increasingly so, those fears begin to dissolve in you. You become not only willing to give, but eager to give. Knowing that so long as you have Jesus and you have his love, you already have everything. Gospel-changed person becomes as eager to share their love as God was eager to share his love with them. It reminds me of one of my heroes, as Ben's a hero of mine since I was young, Jim Elliott, who went to the same school that my wife and I graduated from. He moved with his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, after they were newly married. Actually, they got married in Ecuador and moved there. So they were so compelled by the good news of the gospel that they wanted to see that gospel known among people who had not yet heard it yet, specifically the Quechua people, who could only be reached in the jungles of Ecuador by airplane. So after diligently learn, working to learn the local language, the Elliot and his group began to drop gifts off from an airplane, hoping to begin to build trust with the Waodani people. Then, by January 3rd, they began officially Operation Aka, in which the five missionaries, including Jim, would camp out on a beach near the tribe, ready with supplies, hoping that this would continue to win trust. And they made, three days later, their first successful contact with some of the tribe members. But then, Sunday morning, January 8th, 1956, those same tribal members returned to the beach, ready for war this time attacking 
and spearing to death Jim and his four companions. Jim Elliott was brutally murdered by the Wa'udani people at 28 years old, leaving his wife, Elizabeth, just over two years into their marriage and leaving their 10-month-old daughter behind. I can remember as a young kid even wondering why Jim would give his life for people he did not know, people who would end up being his enemies. The answer, it turns out, comes from Jim's journals, which were published years later by his wife. Listen to this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that one more time. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Jim knew that he already had all the love he could ask for in Christ. And so there was nothing he could possibly give away that was not already his in Christ, even his own life. You see, only the gospel, only seeing God die for his enemies, that those enemies might be made friends, will make us willing and eager to do the same with our own lives. In fact, just three years later, after her husband's death, Elizabeth Elliot, along with one of the other widows, decided to go back to South America and attempt once again to reach the very tribe that had killed their husbands. Only this time, after living in the jungles, they were successful. And after 20 years of work, the tribe that had killed Jim Elliot became Christians, brothers and sisters in Jim's family. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' blood shed, inspired Jim even to be willing to have his own blood shed. And just as Christ's blood gave way to life, so did Jim give life to, to many. Only the gospel, only the greatest act of selfless love can produce this kind of selfless love in us, the kind of love that bears much fruit. It refers, this uh, idea of bearing much fruit refers back to the illustration that Jesus has been developing right before these verses, the image of a vine that bears fruit and of a gardener, gardener who prunes that fruit, that vine's hoping to, uh, to continue to have it flourish, to produce even more. The point is that those who are actually bound up to Jesus, those who will abide in Jesus, will do so by obeying him. How? What kind of obedience is Jesus asking of them? Well, this kind of selfless love. Notice verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, this kind of love must be experienced before it can be reproduced. Only experiencing the selfless love of God supremely through the death of Jesus, his son, upon the cross, only that can implant love in the heart. Joy in the heart, so real and enduring that we then can't help to, but to share that love. In fact, it is in extending this same love that love becomes all the more full, all the more real. Do you see how joy and love are actually bound up together here? Abiding by this kind of self-denying love is duty, but it's also joy, according to verse 11. In fact, only 
A selfless life can produce, can result in the kind of life of joy that we long for. And it's only that kind of joy, then, that can produce a selfless life. Do you see how they feed one another? And what will the final result be? It will be fruit. Well, what kind of fruit, friends? It's not grapes. It's not just godly character, or which is necessary. It's not, a sense of, not just a sense of peace and hope in a crazy world, which God himself will indeed produce. You know, the, the fruit actually looks so much further beyond us. Ultimately, that fruit is bound up with the mission that Jesus is leaving with his disciples. A mission to go and make more disciples who would make more disciples who would experience this love with them. Friends, the greatest mark of selfless love, the greatest mark of a disciple, is that they will long for more to share this love with them. To share in the kind of love that they experienced from God. They want more to experience it too. They want more to worship him. To be bound up into that love story. The greatest mark of a disciple is that the longer they abide in Christ's love, the more they want to see others abide in it too. You see, the love of Christ doesn't make us ingrown and self-focused. It doesn't pull us into our little holy huddles. It moves us outward. We begin to think beyond ourselves. And so an unbreakable chain results from that. Love experienced. Love extended. And then love exploding with exponential growth. Let me ask those of you who are Christians, are you awake to Christ's love for you? Does your life confirm that? Do you think beyond yourself, no matter what stage you are in? Or are you even wasting your days now in self-protection and apathy? Does your experience of God's love that did not begin with you, does it end with you? Would those who know you best describe you as someone who is eager to die to themselves for the sake of others? Someone who longs for and seeks the salvation of those who do not yet know God's love? Or, and I really do say this to myself, have we become spiritually obese, feeding ourselves over and over, claiming to experience God's love without thought to passing this love on to someone else? That's the very essence of becoming spiritually obese malnutrition, spiritually obese, is that this love was made to be extended, to be passed on. question really boils down to, are you bearing fruit, friends? We're about to engage in a year even more focused on discipleship, on making disciples, which is the mission of every local church, including ours, on members, taking interest in the lives of other members, of demonstrating this kind of intentional, eager, self-denying love to one another, And then being sent, catalyzed by that love to begin to extend that love to others who don't yet know it. That another generation might take up the baton of faith. This next year, we are going to be taking some aggressive steps that we might see the mission uh, uh, continue in our church. It is a year that's going to ask a lot from us. A year in which we are going to show off if we really do believe that this mission that Jesus has entrusted us needs to continue in this local church or not. But even as we're about to step into this season, we we cannot do so without the gospel, without the enduring awareness, not of what we need to do, but what has already been done for us. After all, Jesus says, 
right before this passage, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me give you three implications of this. You see, Jesus, when it comes to our love, Jesus is our standard for love. His love is the very definition of the kind of love that we've been commissioned to extend, a love that is both affection and action, that doesn't feel, just feel warm feelings, but shows up when it really matters, doesn't just do things for someone, but actually does so out of a deep sense of compassion and joy, a love that knows and seeks the good of others. This same love is a love that sets self aside, counts you as more important than me, a love that does not need that love to be reciprocated, to be worthwhile, a love that expects and even endures through difficulty. Jesus is our standard, but Jesus is also our enduring motive. Jesus is the ultimate motive for love. 1 John 3.16 By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Ephesians 5, 2, And walk in love, as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I mean, doesn't that just sound like what we just read? Why would we ever lay down our lives for others, even our enemies? Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for me. Before God calls me to love, he has overwhelmed me with his love. What could I possibly give up that God has not already given up for me? What, could, what possible reason could I have to be stingy with my money, my time, my forgiveness? Don't I have already all that I need now in him? What possible reason could I have to wait for others to take the initiative, to seek me out? Did Jesus wait for me to take initiative before he extended his love to me? Jesus himself is our motive for love. And finally, Jesus is our power for love. The whole point of an abiding vine is that the branch can't bear fruit on its own. I mean, you ever, if you broke off a grape branch and you set it on the ground, is it going to continue to, no, those grapes will become raisins. They'll probably become rancid long before that. But Jesus, again, the point is, is that that branch must be connected to the vine. Jesus, as the vine, provides the life that is necessary for that fruit to take place. In other words, Jesus provides what he requires. Jesus is the wellspring of our obedience. Jesus is the source and essence of love. His spirit, now, that he has poured out into the lives of believers, into the lives of Christians, now awakens love. It's one of its main jobs. The Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit all together care enough about the mission that they have entrusted us to provide what God requires. Jesus is our standard, Jesus is our motive, and Jesus is our power for love. You know, I began by reading, O Holy Night, I'd love to end by reading some of its final lyrics because I think, in many ways, as we prepare to wrap up our explanation unpacking of hope, peace, joy, and love all bound up in Jesus, A Holy Night, I think, uh, brings all of these together in a really powerful way. Let's try this again. Friends, as we prepare to close... I'd love to actually once again revisit O Holy Night. You see, in its final lyrics, I think it 
weaves together these ideas of hope, of peace, of love, and of joy in a really powerful way, all bound up through Jesus Christ. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love. His gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression will cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. O oh, praise his name forever. His power, his glory, evermore proclaim. His power, his glory, ever more proclaim. Lord, truly, your power and glory, we evermore want to proclaim. Jesus, you are Lord, and your love for us is our only reason we would have to have a life of selfless love now. You provide truly what you've required. You've set the standard for our love, and so I ask that you would give us wisdom on how to respond to that love tangibly, practically, now. Your love wasn't just good emotion for us, it showed up in action. But that action was also full of deep affection. Would you awaken that kind of love in our own hearts, particularly among the brothers and sisters here at Bayless? And for those who are not yet Christians, would they hope in this love finally? Would they stop looking for this love everywhere else and go to the one, to the source, to the original, and find that love in him? being bound up into that love story, which will now, just as it didn't begin with them, it won't end with them. Would we see the fruit of that in our church more and more and more come to faith in Jesus Christ, experience and extending that love so long as they draw breath? And so we look to Christ, our standard, our motive, and our power for obedience. And we praise you for the Holy Spirit that you've put within us for that very mission. It's for Christ's sake we pray. Amen.